Let's open our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 10. We are just plugging away in this great epistle. We'll finish chapter 10 today, picking up where we left off last week. So that has us in verse 18. We'll actually back up one verse and get a little bit of a head start as we go into this, starting in verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 10. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this pure and perfect and good gift given to us from you by your spirit. I pray, Lord, that, that this morning your spirit would accomplish all of your good purposes in us and through us by your word. I pray for myself that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, imagine you had won $100 million. I would say that you'd won the lottery, but I think that's more of a curse than a blessing if you track what's happened in people's lives. Imagine, though, you've won $100 million, and all you have to do is go next door to the fire station. It's the great town of Topeka that's given you this money, I guess. I don't know. You need to go to the fire station next door and just pick up the check. That's it. That's the good news you've received. $100 million is yours. Just go pick up the check at the fire station. Would you disobey that good news? It would be totally insane to disobey that kind of good news. Well, Paul reveals to us that's exactly what Israel has done. That's exactly what they have done. They have disobeyed the good news. He said in verse 16, as we saw last week, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. We don't often think of obedience in those terms. Gospel just means good news. And Paul frames obedience in, in the terms of receiving a free gift. But that's exactly what is commanded of us, to receive the free gift offered in the gospel. It is a, a command, and so to not do so is to disobey the gospel, Paul says. Well, re remember as we, as we continue on in chapter 10 here this morning that what Paul's been doing in chapters 9, 10, and, and will do continuing in chapter 11 is to really answer the question, if all these promises this gospel you have gloriously laid out for us in the first eight chapters, if all of that is true, then why is Israel finding themselves outside the camp? Why, why, are they, why have they not come into salvation? Why, by and large, have the Jewish people rejected their own Messiah? Why have they refused to receive salvation? And, and so Paul has been answering that question for us in a number of ways. Last week, we saw the steps necessary for salvation. God must send a preacher. The preacher 
must preach the true gospel. The people must hear the good news. The people must believe the gospel. And the people must call on the name of the Lord. And that process had begun for the Jews and it broke down because they refused to believe. And now as he continues, Paul's going to further explain showing that Israel's unbelief is not a failure on God's part. These four verses that we're looking at this morning have four Old Testament quotations establishing that Israel is 100% culpable for their unbelief. They are totally responsible for this. God's promises have not failed. God has not failed to deliver on even one of them. God has not failed Israel. But this rebellious people have rejected God's promises. So, why did Israel fail to believe the Messiah? Paul answers that. And the first thing Paul says is, well, it's not because they didn't hear. Look at verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. This is not an innocent ignorance. They cannot claim, Paul tells us, I just didn't know. God had sent them preachers. The preachers had preached the true gospel. Israel had heard, but they had not believed. They had not called on Jesus, and so they had not been saved. And so Paul, Paul's abundantly clear about this in, in these passages, echoing what the Old Testament prophets said, which is to say to Israel, you have found yourself outside the camp. This isn't a message of hate from Paul. People will say this. This is anti-Semitism, saying the Jews are not saved. No, that's not what it is. This is a message of broken-hearted love from Paul. If you remember what he said at the beginning of, of chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Well, how much more brokenhearted can there be? How much more love can there be than that? I mean, there's a lot of people in this world I love, that I agonize over, but never once have I said, I'd go to hell in their place. As the great theologian Bob Dylan once said in a song, I ain't going to go to hell for nobody. This is why you should stick to your notes. But he echoes this same thought in chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. Paul's not hating his kinsmen. This isn't born out of anti-Semitism. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, we know him as, the one Christ had commissioned to take the gospel to tribes and tongues and people other than the Jews, this apostle, still every time he went to a new city, what did he do first? He went to the synagogue. He went to the synagogue first. Even though he was sent by Christ as a herald to the Gentiles, he always went first to his kinsmen, the Jews, to preach to them because he loved them. He went to them to take the saving gospel of grace to them. He went to them to make sure they heard, to make sure they heard the true gospel, to make sure they knew the good news of Jesus, but they would not believe. Why didn't they believe? Well, back up and look at verse 11. 
Paul says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And down in verse 17 that we started with this morning. So faith comes from hearing. Hearing through the word of Christ. And then Paul follows up these statements. This glorious statement in verse 17. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing through the words of Christ. Verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in verse 18. He brings us something of the excuse. Something of the excuses. We make excuses for why has Israel rejected God's offer of salvation. And the excuse is, well, they haven't, they haven't heard. They, they simply haven't heard the gospel. That's the, that's the excuse that gets put forward. And Paul does what, what he often does, as we've seen in Romans, which is he brings the opponent's excuse in, and then he gives an answer to it. And, and Paul emphatically refutes that argument, and he says, indeed, they have heard. Oh, it's not that they haven't heard. And then he quotes Psalm 19, verse 4, to make it clear. Psalm 19, verse 4. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Psalm 19, you may remember, is this great psalm of God's self-disclosure, of the way that God reveals himself to the world. And this psalm shows us the two different ways that God reveals himself to the world. The first is general revelation. God, God reveals himself in nature, in everything that he has made. This revelation is universal. Paul told us in Romans chapter 1, there's not a single person who has ever lived on this planet that doesn't see it. They all see. They all know. This is a universal revelation of God, and he also reveals himself, Psalm chapter 19 shows us in special revelation, God communicating personally to specific people in his word, in his son, who John calls the word made flesh. These two categories, general revelation and special revelation, have some, some things in common, but they are significantly different. So if, if we were to take the time to turn over to Psalm 19 and, and work our way through it, we'd see it's divided into three parts as it concerns the revelation of God. The, the first section is the first six verses, which is dealing with general revelation. God has made himself known universally to everyone that has ever lived in this creation that he has made. It starts, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In other words, the psalmist is saying the whole universe is shouting the glory of God, and everybody sees it, everybody hears it, Everyone knows, everyone, everywhere in all the world that has ever lived sees and hears and knows creation's proclamation about Creator God. The second section of Psalm 19 is, is verses 7 through 9, and that's dealing with special revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect, verse 7 says, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And, and he goes on giving these parallel 
statements about the Word of God and its effects on us. Then the third section just deals with the residual effects of the Word of God in the heart of man, how we are transformed by the living Word of God. And so it's section one, God has, has revealed His power in creation in a general way. Everyone sees, everyone knows. Section two, what the Word of God is like. Section three, what effect that has in the believer's life. And so Paul deals in Romans chapter 1 with this general revelation that every single person sees and every single person knows. And what does Paul tell us that mankind does with that revelation that is so clear and unmistakable and we can't miss it? What do we do? Romans 1 says we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. That's what people do. But we can't claim ignorance. There's, there's no room for claiming ignorance. Romans 1 says, we know. Psalm 19 says, we know. And then in Romans chapter 2, it says, not only can, can they claim that they don't know about God, they can't claim that they don't know the difference between right and wrong. We do have a moral compass because we are created in the image of God. Everyone knows Everyone who has ever lived knows we should be held accountable for wrongdoing. That's why every society ever has some system of laws and punishment, because we all know this. We're created in the image of God. Every human being that has ever lived knows these things. There is a creator with ultimate power who made all things. We are responsible to him, and there is right and there is wrong. So what's Paul doing then in Romans chapter 10 using Psalm 19 verse 4? Well, he is not giving us the interpretation of Psalm 19 verse 4. Paul here is not saying, you know what the true meaning of that verse is? The true meaning of that verse is that Israel is responsible for their unbelief in Jesus. That's not what Paul's doing. It's not the true meaning of that verse. He's using it as an analogy. He's applying it to the situation. He is, he's using it to prove that Israel is 100% responsible for rejecting the special revelation of Christ. J just as general revelation in creation makes the whole world accountable to the knowledge of God that has been universally declared, so too special revelation has made the Jews doubly accountable to God. Doubly responsible in their unbelief and rejection of Jesus. That's what, what Paul's doing. And so Paul takes David's words in, in Psalm 19 about the universal reach of the revelation of God and he applies them to the reach of his revelation to his people Israel. It, it's been universal among Israel. J just as every human has heard creation's sermon, they know about the creator. Paul says specifically what they know is his eternal power and divine nature. Everyone knows it. Just as that is fully universal, and so no one has any excuse for their idolatry or unbelief, Paul says, so too the Jews have heard God's special revelation. That they have heard God's message about the Messiah, and so they are morally culpable for their idolatry and their unbelief. What he's doing by quoting Psalm 19 verse 4 is to show the audacity of Israel's unbelief. It's insanity. 
It's arrogance to the, to the highest degree. They have willfully, rebelliously rejected God's personal salvation. They thought the law was there to prove their righteousness. We are righteous, upright people, and we have God's law, and that proves how good we are. And so they didn't see any need for a savior. They, they refused to abandon self-righteousness, and so they refused to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And Paul says here, that is not a matter of them not hearing the gospel they've heard. They know. They, they were in an incredibly privileged position to hear the gospel. In chapter 3 of Romans, Paul told us in verse 1, what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. For all of Israel's history, God dealt directly with them. God spoke directly to them. In, in chapter 9, verse 4, Paul says, They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's the privilege that Israel had. That's the great privilege. They had the Old Testament scriptures, and Paul makes it clear, of all people on the planet, you have heard the gospel. You, you not only had this privilege in your history, you have heard the gospel. By the time that the letter to the Romans was written, there was not a group of Jews living anywhere on the face of the earth who had not heard the gospel. Every one of them had heard. They knew. They knew. And what did they do with all that privilege? What did they do with all, all that God had given them? They suppressed it. They tried to bury the truth, put a lid over it so that it would never see the light of day again. And then they acted that out throughout their history. They killed the prophets, put them on the, in the ground and covered them over. They murdered the Son of God. They buried him. And Paul says they knew. They had heard. But then the argument comes, well, maybe they had heard, but maybe they just didn't understand. Paul addresses this second excuse in verse 19. He says it's not because they didn't understand. Verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? And Paul, Paul's going to dismantle this argument using three different Old Testament quotes. To prove that, not only have they heard, but yes, they have understood the gospel. Israel is for, fully morally responsible for her rejection of Jesus. What, what specific things did they understand? Paul shows us here in his quotations. First, they understood what was going on in God's use of the Gentiles. God was calling the Gentiles and throughout Israel's history using the Gentiles in order to provoke Israel. Look as we go on in verse 19. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. It says, first, Moses says. And then he's about to quote Deuteronomy 32. He wants to be clear, though. First, Moses says. In other words, Moses is just the first in a long line of people God has sent to you to proclaim the truth to you, and you've rejected all of them. The first one is here, Moses. 
He's the first one you rejected in your unbelief. And, and he, this quote he's going to give here that Paul's going to use comes from the Song of Moses. It's, it's basically Moses' final words to Israel. Moses has just been told by God that he's going to die. And Moses says, here's a song I want you to give to the people. So, so they can rehearse these truths that I'm about to proclaim to you. Go, write down the message of what's going to happen. And if we, if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 19, God says to Moses, Now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths. This song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers and have eaten and are full and have grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness. It will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring, for I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give to them. So God tells Moses, look, you got one more thing to do before you die, and that's communicate this message, because these people are going to thoroughly break the covenant I have made with them, and when they feel the weight of that settle in on them, and they begin to question, how did this happen to us? They're going to have this indictment from me, reminding them through all their generations of exactly what they did and why the covenant's broken. And so chapter 32 of Deuteronomy is that song. It is that, largely anyway, that indictment from God. And we're not going to take the time to read the whole thing, but just here's a taste of it. Verse 3, for I will pro proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. This rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They're a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, made you, and established you? This is the song, the indictment from God, so that when Israel feels the weight of the fact that they have broken the covenant and the, and the prophets in the Old Testament are going to use the language of divorce, God has divorced you because you have thoroughly abandoned your vows. They're going to have this song. And they're going to be reminded, what we are going through is because of this. We have dealt corruptly with the righteous, holy God who made all things and who called us to be his people, and so we are no longer his children. What a shocking Thing to hear. In verse 21, it says, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish generation, or with a foolish nation. That's the, the verse that Paul quotes there. See, the Jews thought of two categories of people existing in the whole world. There's us and everybody else. We're in, we're smart, we're God's people, we are wise, we are clean, we are good, we are righteous, and everyone else is worthless. They are stupid. They are outsiders. We are teachers. We are wise. 
were the insiders, but, but God provoked them throughout their history. These words played out. God provoked them through their history using the Gentiles. The Jews were jealous of their wealth and their power. The Jews were jealous of their rule over them, of their treatment of them. Ultimately, the Jews were jealous of their inclusion in the gospel. They refused to accept that we're on an even playing field here. There's no Jew, no Greek. They understood that. They understood why God called the Gentiles because God told them why he called the Gentiles. He gave them this and said, this will endure for all your generations. You will not forget this message from me. Second, they understood their own history. Verse verse 20 now, back in Romans chapter 10. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. He's quoting here Isaiah 65 verse 1, which most literally reads, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me, and I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Now, a lot of commentators will take this verse, verse 20, and they'll say, verse 21 is a statement about the Gentiles, or verse 20 is a statement about the Gentiles, verse 21 is a statement about the Jews. And in your translation, as in mine, 21 even starts with but. So so verse 20, "Then, then Isaiah is so bold to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me, I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me, verse 21, but of Israel, he says. That word but makes us think, okay, he's talking about the Gentiles first, but now I'm going to say a word about Israel. However, that could actually be translated not so emphatically. It could be translated and of Israel, I say. I tend to think that's more fitting with the flow of what Paul's doing here, that he's not talking about the Gentiles, he's talking about Israel. This is an indictment of Israel's unbelief. God in the midst of indicting Israel for their rebellion and unbelief in Isaiah 65. God in the midst now as as Paul is is bringing this passage forward in Romans 10 to, to point the finger at Israel and say, this is why you don't believe. This is no failure on God's part. This is all on you. He reminds them that God says, look, I took the initiative to reveal myself to you. You were not a people. You were not seeking me. Abraham, the wandering pagan shepherd, was not seeking God. God just reached down and plucked him up and started making promises to him. You're going to be a people. You weren't a nation until I made you one, Israel. I didn't pick you because you were awesome. Quite the opposite. God at every turn had taken the initiative with them. This, by the way, is what God must do for every person. Paul made that clear in Romans chapter 3. No one seeks God. The Greek there, no one, means no one. No one seeks God. We are, to use Paul's imagery, enslaved to sin. We are dead in sin. So if anyone is going to find God, to use the popular language of the day, 
They must actually be found by God. They must actually be sought by God. God permits himself to be discovered by those who are not seeking. There, there are churches all over. This has been going on for about 25 years now that are gearing everything they do towards the seeker. I think they're moving away from that language a little bit, but you still see it out there in, in what we'd call the attractional model. And that is we're going to do everything we can so that this, this unbeliever who's seeking some vague notion of God will come in and, and really be wowed by our, our awesome music and our, and our cool dramas and all the different things we do. And maybe they'll stick around long enough to hear the gospel and be saved. Now, the problem is those churches almost never preach the gospel. So it's a flawed concept. But it's really flawed from the start because the Bible says no one seeks God. So this category of people that we cater everything to in the church, that, that the church growth experts will tell us this is what you need to do if you want your church to grow, it's, it's catering to a category of people that doesn't exist. No one seeks God. All are enslaved to sin. All are dead in sin. They must be sought by God. He takes the initiative. It's the only way it ever works. It is all of grace. God gets all the glory. And thank God that that's true. Thank God it wasn't up to us. 18-year-old Jason was not seeking God, I can assure you. And like the Jews, I knew. Like the Jews, I had heard. I understood. Third, then they understood God's relentless, merciful invitation. Verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Again, I think that's better understood, and of Israel. So what Paul's quoting here is actually the very next verse in Isaiah 65. First he quotes verse 1, and then he continues to quote verse 2. And he's showing two things here with this verse. One is God's relentless patient mercy, and second is Israel's obstinate unbelief and refusal to obey. So Isaiah 65 verse 2 says, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. Now the truth is, the sinful creature should be stretching his hand out continually. He, he should be the one reaching for the creator God, pleading for his mercy. He should cry out for help because of his hopeless state, casting himself on the mercy of God, begging God to grant him mercy instead of judgment. But the sovereign God of heaven and earth instead portrays himself holding out his hands in gracious invitation to the sinner who has offended him. How beautiful is that? How gracious is our God? How kind? Only God does that. Only God does that. We don't do that. Not apart from supernatural grace, we don't. Do you get offended by someone? They have wronged you. They have slandered you. They have taken up a campaign to, to besmirch your good and, and wonderful name. And your heart for them is just, oh, I just want to love you. I just want to draw you in close and welcome you in. I just want to shower you with kindness and, and welcome you in, into my life. In fact, I would like to be so closely associated with you that you carry my name around and how you behave is a reflection on me. Oh, that's what I want. 
If you've ever had that inclination, you are a far, far better person than I am. And you're probably lying. Because that's not what we do. That's not how we respond. That's what God does. That's who God is. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. Holding out his hands a really long time to a rebellious and obstinate people. This is the father of the prodigal son watching and waiting. The son has basically told him, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance right now. I want my share. And yet when he sees this rebellious son, a long way off, he runs to him. And he embraces him. Why? Because that's the heart of God. That's the nature of God. That's who God is. The nature of of God is to hold out his hands in gracious invitation to the sinner who hears and believes the gospel, who recognizes his lostness and his need for a savior and who will turn to God as his only hope. This is who God is. That person will always see God standing with his arms wide open. It's never true that the repentant sinner turns to God and God says, sorry, too late. Sorry, you've gone too far. Well, Israel knew this about God. They knew this. They knew this is who God was, and yet they refused to come to him and be saved. Israel had always known this about God. Consider the response of the Gentiles to this gospel, to this truth of a God who will relent from sending just condemnation and wrath and judgment if only you will turn to him in obedience and faith. And the Gentiles responded in droves. That's why Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, because they responded to this message. Consider the book of Jonah. And God's enemies, the Ninevites, an excessively wicked people. They were exceedingly evil, and Jonah did not want to go Proclaim the truth to them, the, me- the message from God to them. God had to force him to go through a series of supernatural events. And so he reluctantly, begrudgingly goes and preaches the message to them, roaming the streets with an angry face saying, God's going to kill all you. And what happens? The whole city, from the king all the way down, repents. Everybody Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The very next verse says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. How can that possibly be? This was the most successful preaching campaign in the history of the world. Go into this excessively evil, God-hating city, preach your message, and everyone, including the king, repents. How is he mad? How can this be? Why is he angry? Well, he tells us. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. 
The, the story of Jonah is often presented as Jonah being the fearful prophet. God had called him to go to this murderous, wicked people, and he was afraid to go. He was afraid for his life. But the actual text of Jonah, coming from Jonah's own mouth, reveals to us that's not at all what was motivating him. Jonah didn't run away because he was scared. He ran because he did not want them to be saved. I do not want these Gentiles to be saved. And when they were, he said, this is exactly, God, why I didn't want to go. Because I knew you'd treat them just like you'd treat us if they came in repentance. And they're not worthy of it. No, not like we are. And the story of Jonah is basically left hanging for us in Scripture with Jonah saying, yeah, God, I think I got a right to be mad about this. Jonah knew all the way back then what all of Israel had known, that God will save all who come to him in repentance and faith. And Jonah hated that. And the Jews of Jesus' day hated that. Israel's issue was not a failure to hear or to understand. It was an obstinate refusal to believe and obey. It's a resentment. It's a, it's a rejection of the grace of God in Christ. And, and now, lest we hear that and we go, okay, yes. Boy, they were bad. Killed the prophets. Killed Jesus. Persecuted the church. Lest we start just looking back through the corridor of time and judging that people group and walk out of here feeling fresh and clean as a daisy. Lest we think we're not on the hook. You need to know, friend, that all of this applies to you too. You can't claim you haven't heard. You've heard. That excuse is, is gone. If you have lived in your own little bubble your whole life until this morning, you have heard the gospel in song and you have heard it right here in this message. You have heard. You are responsible. You can't claim that you don't understand. God has made it clear. The gospel is not hard to understand. The child can understand it. It's not a complicated message. It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection in your place for your sin. Believe and you will be saved. Trust in him. Entrust yourself to this Savior. It is a simple message. No, failure to believe the gospel is a matter of rebellion. You need to know that. It's disobeying, verse 16 says, the good news. Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone disobey good news? Please don't do that. Don't, don't do that. You've been given untold riches, far greater than $100 million. Just pick up the check. Don't reject this in your arrogance. If you won't, you'd be refusing, you'd be disobeying life as a free gift. No, it's not a list of things to do and a list of things not to do. It is citizenship in heaven. It is adoption into God's family with all the privileges and blessings that come with that. 
It's, it's freedom from slavery. It's canceled debt, forgiveness of sin. It's conquering death itself. And best of all, it's God. It's God himself. That's what he's offering you. He's giving us himself, direct access to God as a loving father. What could be better than that? You might be tempted to think of yourself as indifferent, as neutral. Maybe you're hearing my words and you're saying, yeah, I'm basically a good person. I'm just sort of on the fence about this. You need to know this, friend. You're in active rebellion. It's a thing that you will be held accountable for by this God. When you stand before the throne of this God, and you will, he will hold you accountable for your rebellion. There is no neutrality. You know that he exists. You know that you're accountable to him. You might try to suppress that truth, but you can't keep it down. It keeps popping up over and over and over again, doesn't it? It's because you know. It's because it's inescapable. It's because the world around you is, is, is bombarding you with this message from God that you cannot resist. But you've even heard a greater message. You've heard of his offer of free grace in Christ. So come. Come to him. Come and be free. Come and live. And, and believer, we, we need to heed this warning. We need to take the warnings seriously when we see them in Scripture. The first thing we ought to do with discernment whether it's in Scripture and we see the errors being presented of, of people in Scripture, in this case Israel, as we look at the world and we say Israel is still acting that way. It's still exactly who they are outside the camp, still refusing. Maybe even on a personal level, you look at someone else's life and you see sin and it frustrates you. Maybe it makes you angry. The very first thing we're supposed to do with that is turn it on ourselves like a mirror and say, where, oh God, am I guilty? Saints, we need to heed this message as well. Don't reject the gospel of grace. Do not, for a second, try to earn your right standing with God through works of your own righteousness, but instead understand that it is, it is Christ alone who saves, and then yes, our lives will testify. Our lives will testify that we have been transformed. And so we must examine our lives when we read a passage like this in Scripture. We must examine ourselves, as Paul says, and see if we're in the faith. Is my life testifying or am I walking in this same kind of disobedience? I just have a better vocabulary for it. Oh, but the offer of the gospel is so much sweeter than $100 million. So much sweeter. God himself as our Father. Complete freedom from sin and its effects. What a glorious gospel this is. What a glorious Savior we have. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, we're, we're humbled as we read these words from our brother Paul concerning Israel. We see how, it, how easy it is how easy it is to let rebellion in our hearts rise up and rob from us the good seed that's been given to us. I pray, Lord, that you would 
you would spare us from that. That, that even by these, these words in Scripture, this would be a means by which you keep your people, that you keep us strong, that you keep us faithful, that you keep us persevering in the faith and bearing fruit in keeping with salvation and repentance. I pray, Lord, that, that we would glory in your gospel, even as we read these words, that our hearts would break for the lost who are walking in this same kind of rebellion we see from Israel that we would be motivated to take the gospel to them with boldness, this good news, be ambassadors for this good news, but also, Lord, that it would produce in us joy that salvation belongs to the Lord and you saw fit to seek us out and to find us and to save us. We who are undeserving, we who are unworthy, that we can live with the confidence of knowing that when you look upon us, you see the righteousness of your Son. We need not fear your displeasure because of Jesus. And so I pray, God, that you would convince us deep down of this glorious gospel, that it would reflect in the way we live our lives, that we would bring glory to you as individuals and as a collective body here at Maple Grove Church for your kingdom's sake, for the joy of your people, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.